I, did, I actually did that in the course I taught, the class I spoke to at Lawrence. I, you know, I didn't want to spot, but I asked, I said it was voluntary, but I asked how many people were, started with how many were here as immigrants or non-immigrants, and then how many had uh, immigrant parents, how many had boyfriend, a significant other who was a, an immigrant, how many had friends, how many had people in their their church or their high school. And of course, by the time I was done, I had everybody in the class with their hands up. So I didn't get even all the way through my list and I had everybody's hand up. So I, you know, then I said, well, so everybody here has a connection with immigration. Some closer than others, but none of us are too far away from it. Yeah, I'm pretty good at stuff like that if I do say so myself. I love the way you start your class. You know, I'm an immigrant too, technically, although my parents brought me to America when I was three, so I guess I didn't really have a say in the decision, but I feel close to my second generation immigrant identity. But I feel close to my second generation immigrant identity and through it to all immigrants. That's why the division and categorization of immigrants as desirable and undesirable is one of many things I really dislike about the current far-right rhetoric. I think it's pretty obvious that desirable is a code word for white and non-Muslim, while undesirable typically means brown or black. But looking through the lens of your past, Paul, you can actually see that 40 years ago, which isn't really that long ago, Congress came together to pass IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, which is responsible for giving a pathway to legal status for 2.7 million individuals. And these were individuals who were, for the most part, Mexican migrant farm workers. So for me, it just seems pretty unimaginable that today we could be in a place where we could pass a bill like IRCA again. So in your opinion, what is different today? Well, I think it represents a shift in thinking. If you go back to IRCA, one of the things that was remarkable about that time was that there was actually quite a bit of bipartisan cooperation between Chairman Mazzoli of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, Senator Simpson, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Chuck Schumer of New York. They were all different personalities, but they all seemed uh, to work together. I didn't see it as, as polarized as it is now. For whatever reason, the current administration, and I, I think well, a lot of folks in the Republican Party have bought the idea that the only good immigration is high-end immigration. There's sort of a myth out there that unemployed Americans and maybe African-American city kids are going to take all the low-wage farm, hospitality, and childcare jobs in a way that sort of, why would they want these jobs any more than white middle-class high school kids do? So I think that most of the American kids, whether they're in the inner city or their parents aren't employed, they probably aspire to the same kinds of jobs that my kids did, uh, middle-class, uh, professional jobs using at least some degree of education. 
I also think that there's, again, a, sort of a myth that's been sold, particularly by the far right, that illegal migration is a problem that can be solved totally by throwing more enforcement money at it on the USN, that we don't have to pay any attention to the forces that are driving it, whether those forces be poor conditions and persecution in foreign countries or market forces generated by our own employers. We seem to have this concept that I've never seen work, that if we put enough border patrol agents out on the border and build enough detention facilities and have enough helicopters and night scopes and make our laws nasty enough that somehow that's going to reverse historic flows of human migration, which I, I just don't think is realistic. And I think that the other issue is nobody on the far right really wants to face up to the issue of what do you do with the 11 million or so people who are currently here without documentation. And the vast majority of them, I used to see them coming through my court all the time, are good folks. They're just like we are. They, they want a better life for themselves, their kids. They, they're law-abiding. They pay taxes. They contribute to the community, and they're performing uh, useful jobs. So the idea that we're going to somehow deport all these folks seems highly unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, most asylum seekers are just genuinely good people who have a lot to contribute to make America great. And actually, you mentioned the types of jobs that are desirable. I see two main words that are used to justify what are, in my opinion, pretty poorly thought out immigration policies, and those are educated and skilled. So these words are problematic because they value a certain type of education and skill. Because they value a certain type of education and skill, and those are the skills and education that will put you in the upper middle class. And the problematic part comes in because those skills and education are seen as the only worthwhile resources that an immigrant can offer to America, while the skills or the education required for a low-wage job is basically considered worthless, both by the rhetoric surrounding immigration given by the far right and by the types of visas and pathways to legalization offered to immigrants by the U.S. government. I also really don't think it's a coincidence that IRCA is considered a failure when to me the fact that it provided a pathway to legal status for 2.7 million folks, the process was also free for the government because the fees that immigrants are paying covered all the costs. And these were immigrants who had contributed to the American economy by working on farms. So really they pretty much earned their stay. So this wasn't just something that was thrown at people. But what do you think, Paul? Well, I tend to agree with you, Marika, that I think Urca got an unduly bad reputation as a failure. Folks blamed the increase in undocumented workers on Urca, said, wow, we had 3 million then, and now we have 11 million. And they've all come because uh, they saw that the Urca people got legalized, so all of those 11 million people, most of them are here hoping to get legalized again. Now, I must say, uh, I've dealt with a lot of people here illegally over my career, and I've, uh, and a lot of my career is after IRCA was enacted. I've never heard anybody actually say that they came here in the expectation that there would be another IRCA. Most people have much 
shorter term focus. They came here to save their life. They came here because they, their kids were in danger. They came here because they couldn't get medical care. They came here to improve their life or because they thought they could get a better job. But I don't think that the types of people that come here by and large are thinking that far down the line that they're projecting some future legalization program. I think when IRCA was enacted, people treated the legalization program with, with respect. And for whatever reason, after that, we got this sort of far right idea that IRCA was amnesty. And instead of the truth, the truth is most of the IRCA people have been here a while. They'd worked in agriculture, which is a tough place to work. They had to go through an application process. They had to pay fees. It wasn't automatic citizenship. They had to wait a while and then qualify for naturalization, just like everybody else who seeks to be naturalized. Some did qualify. Some applied for naturalization. Some didn't. So the idea that this is some sort of amnesty, I think, is it's a pejorative term. What, what it really was, an earned legalization and a path to citizenship, but by no means a guarantee of citizenship. And a glaring problem that nobody wants to address is that a lot of the employer needs in this country aren't necessarily for more professors, more researchers, more all-star baseball players. A lot of the needs are for what we would call unskilled workers. I'm not sure that even that term is, is valid. I think a lot of the things that the ruling class sort of arrogantly categorizes as unskilled really take more. It's, they're just skills that either Americans don't have or that we look down on. Pretty good example, I think, is home health care for elderly people. I mean, in a lot of countries, that's a very honorable profession. And I've, you know, my father needed health care. I've seen other people who needed health care. And obviously, it's not that easy. And it is something where you want to make sure you have the right person. And I think our current system has already pretty much barred unskilled workers. There's, there are very few visa slots set aside for unskilled workers, many less than the need. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why we have the large undocumented population that we have is that our current law does not really meet the needs of the U.S. employer force. You have laws that don't that aren't realistic and don't meet needs, you have essentially a black market. And what we really have is a black market in labor or a, an extra legal market, if you will. All right. Now I definitely want to know if we could get an ERCA passed again today. How did you guys get a written pass in 86? How was it implemented? And yeah, I mean, I definitely have a lot of questions for this ERCA episode. So, Paul, can you tell me a quick run-through of the cast of characters involved in the passage of Urca? Well, it was an uh, interesting cast of characters, uh, both on the legislative and the executive side. On the legislative side from the Senate, there was Alan Simpson, who was from Wyoming. He was a chairman of the Judiciary Committee. The Democratic side, Ron Mazzoli of 
Kentucky was the chairman of, I think, House Judiciary at that time. Then Al Nelson was the Commissioner of Immigration, was from California, so that was from the executive. Phil Brady, who was the head of the legislative office at the Department of Justice, he knew Al Nelson very well, and he was connected to Vice President George H.W. Bush. And then Chuck Schumer. I don't think Schumer had an official leadership position, but he brokered the agricultural worker deal. He represented New York, but he was sort of a a New York City guy, big urban guy, but he was looked at as honest broker of an agricultural deal. Whoa, Chuck Schumer. He's been around a long time. So now can you bring me back to the summer of 86? You guys didn't think the act would pass, so how exactly was this feat achieved? It had been on the table for a while, ever since the Carter administration, but this is the most progress we ever had. But after the bill had passed both houses, I think in the mid-80s, it went to a conference committee where they resolved the differences between the bills, and I think it died it died on sort of the juxtaposition between the legalization program and the needs of agricultural employers. And what they came up with was a program that would allow many of the workers who had worked in agricultural for periods of time to become legalized, but also create a more robust temporary worker program that would be user-friendly but carefully regulated to prevent worker abuse. So by coming up with a special agricultural worker provision, he sort of broke the logjam that had kept the bill from getting out of conference committee. Back at INS, were you all aware that this logjam had been cleared? I do remember. It was, it was getting late in the legislative year, and I think we the bill seemed kind of dead during the summer. INS, the head of our legislative office, had actually had a wake for IRCA and had invited everybody down for beer and chips after work one night to mourn the demise of the latest IRCA bill. So I think most of us who had worked on it, I was in the general counsel's office. I was a deputy general counsel. I was sort of a legislative expert, had put it in the back of our minds and gone on to think about other things. And then all of a sudden, we started getting word that, well, maybe the with Schumer involved, maybe this was going to work. All of a sudden, the train started moving. Schumer cut a deal that, that looked like it was going to be acceptable. So all of a sudden, right at the end, the bill that we put out of sight, out of mind, had legs again and looked like it was going to pass. And so when ERCA was passed, what was the main reaction of INS? Well, I think the immediate reaction was probably panic. Because <laughs> uh, I think over the years, people sort of got it in the back of their head that immigration reform was never going to pass. Or you know, if it did pass, it would be scaled way down into something that would be uh, much smaller than had been proposed. But I also think that... A lot of people saw it as an exciting opportunity. It put the agency on the map. It made the jobs, even there were important jobs to begin with, even more important. I, I think it was both sort of scary, but also looked at as 
an opportunity and certainly something that was engaging, no doubt. Was Ines ready to take on this expansion? Well, Ines didn't have a very good reputation. It was sort of the backwater of the Department of Justice. And even then, even before the days of DHS, it had a very spread out mission. It was in charge of border enforcement, interior immigration enforcement, criminal immigration enforcement, the work in the immigration courts, as well as adjudicating applications for benefits for everything from temporary visas or people needing who were in proceedings needing work permits all the way up to naturalization. And it was a, a decentralized organization. It, if you look at the charts, the only folks in the central office who were supposed to be exercising line control were the commissioner and the deputy commissioner and the general counsel who had line authority over the regional council and the district council, and we had some sector council. Ooh, this already sounds pretty confusing. But there was a whole central office staff that replicated the regional staff. There was an associate commissioner for examinations, for management, for uh, enforcement, and each of them had assistant, there was an assistant commissioner for investigation, for border patrol, for detention and deportation, for adjudications, for inspections, for personnel management. So it wasn't really so much of a line as it was a complicated spider web. When we were in school, we used to play this game where you you say something to somebody and then you whisper it around the class and by the yeah. time it gets back, yeah, well, that was sort of INS. You, know, you, you give an instruction and by the time it gets down to the people implementing it, the understanding and the context and the message is quite different probably from when uh, the commissioner thought it up. So as a management organization, this wasn't lean and mean and ready for prime time. It was a very ponderous operation. You know, I think in headquarters, you sort of issued a policy or gave an instruction, and then they sort of waited to see what, if anything, happened to it. <laughs> but it, it wasn't something, I don't think you'd ever have gotten this management model in an MBA program. It was pretty, uh, pretty bureaucratic, pretty busy. was famously described as a three-legged stool with three main parts. One, employer sanctions. Two, legalization. Three, enforcement and expansion. So theoretically, what was IRCA supposed to do? What were the legs of the stool supposed to hold up and hold steady? Yeah, well, I guess the, yeah, the three-legged stool analogy was big, and I think maybe that's why IRCA got a bad reputation. I, I believe the legalization program worked pretty well. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and there was, yeah, there was some- employer sanctions and employer compliance. Well, theoretically, it, theoretically it made sense that you take care of the past by legalizing the workforce and that that would be an additional supply of legal workers for U.S. employers that would help them wean off their over-reliance on uh, foreign labor, undocumented foreign labor. Plus, you then 
had employer sanctions that was supposed to cut off the magnet of illegal labor by making it too costly and too risky for employers to hire undocumented workers, thus making them rely more on American workers or on legal workers that came through the legal immigration system. And finally, once having taken care of the people who are already here and having cut off the magnet that was drawing people over the border, you put more enforcement out there, both to seal or restrict the border and also enforcement to enforce employer sanctions and to apprehend those people who do get by the first layer of enforcement at the border. So in theory, it solves the past and it takes care of the future, but it didn't exactly work that way. So basically when IRCA was enacted, there was a lot of changes in INS, right? So let's go through the three legs of the stools. One, you guys had to expand enforcement, which meant basically hiring a bunch of new Border Patrol agents in various offices. This looked very good for congressmen who, through the expansion of the enforcement arm of INS, were able to hire people in their congressional district, were able to hire more TSA agents. You've talked in the past about how this is kind of a quick way for congressmen to gain favor with their constituents. The second leg of the stool, legalization, basically meant creating new offices for legalization, which meant hiring. You guys basically had to hire 200 to 600 staff attorneys. Some of these positions were temporary. Some of these positions were permanent. Then there were a bunch of small things that you guys had to do, like for each of the new offices created, get new clerical support computers. There were no set regulations in IRCA, so you guys basically had to make all of the regulations for these new offices. And then, of course, employer sanctions, which I just think is amazing that anyone thought they could sanction employers in America, basically required creating a whole new court system because employers didn't want to be charged and tried in front of immigration courts. And all of these, whether it's temporary or permanent hirings, basically whatever it was, was created a huge expansion in INS all of a sudden. And this was INS where we, as we talked about before, the chain of command was already pretty confusing. There ended up being a lot of turf fights. Overall, though, what IRCA did was legalize 2.7 million undocumented workers. And this whole process of legalization was actually free because it was actually structured to be self-sustaining. So immigrants were paying for their own papers to be processed. And so I personally think that's pretty important. And that's the one point I had to say. But let's get into talking a bit more about some of the other benefits of IRCA uh, in this next section. So, Paul, what would you say are a few of the main takeaways from IRCA? Well, one is I think the legalization program worked 
there was undoubtedly as with any large program some fraud but i think a lot of the fraud was detected and prosecuted but for the most part it was able to in a cost-effective manner legalize millions of people bring them into the mainstream of our society and i've run into some of these people their kids are some of them are students are working in the department of justice so I think it's really benefited the country by creating, uh, by allowing people uh, to become full part of our society and uh, use their talents to their full extent. And as far as I can tell, uh, the next generation is making exactly the kind of contributions uh, we've heard of. The second thing I think was that employer sanctions, at least as was conceptualized, is a non-starter. I just don't think there's any real acceptance out there, either in the employer community, but also in the political community. It, no administration, I think the Reagan administration maybe gave it a crack at the start, but since then, no administration has really had any enthusiasm for sanctioning U.S. employers for hiring because it's viewed as a burden and an infringement on U.S. business, particularly small businesses that are often active in the community, uh, active politically. So I just see that as the idea that we're going to be able to, to prevent any hiring of undocumented aliens by large fines on employers or injunctions or throwing in place. I don't think it's going to work. I know that the DHS is you know, trying to bust people at 7-Eleven. But actually what they're busting are mostly the workers, not the people who, and maybe a few of the franchisees, but not the corporate executives of the 7-Eleven brand. So I think generally, I don't think employer sanctions is going to work, watching it over a number of administrations. I just don't think there's a political consensus for it. And without a political consensus, you're never going to get it funded and the enforcement is never going to be accepted. I also think that the idea, the third leg, the combination of having more legal workers plus some better temporary worker visa programs plus a lot of enforcement was going to prevent the entry of undocumented workers. I think that's also a proven failure. I, I don't think that that worked. And, you know, I don't think, I think the whole idea that legalization is the crux of our current uh, undocumented worker population and the, the fact that we had 3 million then, 11 million now, that's all the fault of the legalization program. I think that's BS. I mean, there, most people came here to fulfill a market need or because of conditions in their country not because of any expectation of eventual legalization or becoming U.S. citizenship as citizens. And to some extent, it, it's sort of a, a dumb position. I mean, legalization, like an adjudication, can be largely self-supporting. The right to live here is a valuable right. People are willing to pay for it. But enforcement is a bottomless pit. It, it's not self-supporting. We keep throwing outrageous amounts of money away on things like walls, fences, drones, 
more jails, more officers, cars, ammunition, guns, but none of that really has solved the problem. So I think, yeah, enforcement remains quite popular because I think congressmen like uniforms, whether it's uniformed inspectors at their airport or uniformed border patrol officers, because it's a visible sign of what they're doing for their community. Yes, I got a border patrol station open here, and now there are jobs for border patrol agents, and they eat at the local restaurants, etc. Yeah, I got 40 more inspection positions for the local airports, and so now the lines move faster, and we can process more tourists. That's sort of the flashy stuff, but I think it satisfies a certain need to have sort of a visible presence, but I don't think the idea that you can that just pouring money to enforce into enforcement is going to solve the problem is viable. I mean, what we should have learned from this is that maximum enforcement won't solve the problem, that you can't seal the border and then deal with legalization, that the lesson we should have learned is you have to look at market forces, the market forces that are creating the black market that basically brings people in to do jobs that are needed for our economy, but U.S. workers are unavailable for or, or won't do. And also forces in foreign countries that are driving people to migrate and particularly disruptions that cause people and persecution that causes people to come here to seek asylum status. And I think in IRCA, the idea was that you can control immigration solely by looking at it from the U.S. end. If we make unauthorized employment illegal and we put out more enforcement officers and we do more enforcement, that that in and of itself will cut off migration flows. And I don't think that's true. And the lesson should be that we need probably more legal immigration and legal immigration across the board, including many of things, many of the things that we call unskilled jobs, basic entry level positions that can't be filled by U.S. workers. But I think that people are going to continue to come no matter how many border patrol agents you put out there. You're never going to be able to shut down the whole border. You can raise the price of smuggling. And so that might momentarily cut the flow. Certainly, I think enforcement efforts have put mom and pop smugglers out of business. But still, the link between legalization and undocumented worker increase, it doesn't really sound like the 2.7 million given a pathway to legal status then brought over or encouraged the current 11 million undocumented folks to migrate to the U.S. And given that there are other major factors for immigration, I just don't really think it's fair to say that IRCA is a cause of undocumented migration increase, especially not when it's painted as the main cause. Well, of course, legalization has sort of a toxic aura around it. The far right and this administration have characterized it as amnesty, and it's looked at as a, a giveaway that encourages more, more illegal immigration. So the idea always is that any legalization program would have to be combined with, a, with some sort of enforcement program that would 
we seal the border first, and then we decide if we're going to legalize anybody after we prove we can seal the border. Of course, we've proved that won't work, and it ignores the real solution, which is that legalization does probably have to be part of a, an overall immigration reform, but that reform can't be solely enforcement first. Enforcement can't really work without a more realistic market-based approach uh, to immigration. We need a larger, more robust immigration system, one that uh, honestly and legitimately addresses uh, the needs of U.S. employers for workers, whether it's through uh, temporary or permanent visas. And I don't like the idea of having a large black market in uh, migration, people that are here uh, without knowing exactly who they are. But if you had a market-based, robust legal immigration program, then most people, I think, would use that program. Yeah, I think a more generous refugee program, uh, particularly for the Central Americans, a realistic program that took uh, many more uh, people from Central America, but uh, did it abroad rather than uh, forcing them to come to the border here, that worked with other countries to distribute uh, refugees, worked with the UNHCR and other countries, not working with them by you know, putting, giving Mexico money to turn people back at the border, but working with uh, Mexico, Canada, other Costa Rica, other receiving countries to come up with an orderly way of distributing refugee flows. So if you could rationalize the legal system, then there'd be fewer reasons for people to immigrate illegally. To be honest about it, once the job market gets saturated with legal labor, people whose only desire was to come here and work would probably stop coming because there wouldn't be jobs for them. Or if they were undercutting the market, then we should be putting the money into wage and hour enforcement rather than border enforcement. And as you diminish the number of the black market, the number of people coming outside the system, you can have a better idea that, one, there's fewer people to concentrate on, so you can do a better job of enforcement, plus a larger percentage of the people coming outside the legal immigration system will be people that are really coming here for antisocial purposes or things we don't want done. I mean, right now we sort of treat somebody coming to uh, pick tomatoes the same way we treat somebody coming to sell drugs, <laughs> sort of end up being treated equally, but they're not. I mean, the person coming to pick tomatoes should come through the legal system, should register, should be screened. Then you have more time to work on the people who are coming to commit fraud or do other things they shouldn't be doing. And then your immigration court isn't going to be filled with people who actually are refugees waiting to get their status approved. The immigration court would have time to take care of the reduced number of people who are evading the legal system. So you could build a system that worked, and that's really the lesson I got out of IRCA. And the way this administration is going about it, of course, will be another colossal failure because they're trying to solve the problem really by creating more problems and just by throwing more law enforcement resources at it. And you're 
never going to have enough jails, enough courts, enough prosecutors, enough agents to stop human migration. Human migration has been going on since the beginning of human history, and it's going to take more than a border wall simply to stop it.